and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that was the Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were to turn uh, our passage this morning into a, a play, uh, it would be an incomplete play. Uh, it would come in two scenes. It would be maybe the first act of a several act play. But in and of itself, it wouldn't be a complete play. Because the reality is scene one sort of sets up scene two. And the whole of them, the, the two of them combined, or act one, if you will, is actually setting up not just the next passage, but the next several. So you can kind of watch as um, for the next several chapters of, of John's gospel, um, passage builds on passage. They're rooted uh, in uh, each other. John isn't writing chronologically. He's, he's not trying to communicate things according to clock and calendar as some of the other gospel writers do. He's writing theologically. He's combining things into sections to sort of build a case, to build, well, he tells us in John 20, right? He's, he's writing so that we would see, we would behold Jesus and therefore believe in him as our Savior. And so what that, what that theological writing means rather than chronological writing, what that theological grouping means for us this morning is we don't know how long after this is. We don't even know what feast it is going on in Jerusalem, even though feasts kind of become an anchor for John's gospel as you read through the rest of it. It means also that... Uh, that John is calling our attention uh, not so much to when, but to why and how. Not to an order of things, not to the order of, of chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, but to the rejection that Jesus is going to face. John writes because he wants us to behold and believe. 
And, and what he shows us in this passage is that the Jewish leaders around him behold and unbelieve, disbelieve, continue in their hardness. First, I want you to see really just two things this morning. Uh, the first is we rest in the work of Jesus. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. He's there for the feast. And in the northeast corner of Jerusalem is a gate. Go read Nehemiah 3. Go read Nehemiah 12. It's called the Sheep Gate. And, and this may come as a total shock to you, but it's the gate through which sheep are typically brought for sacrifice. Sounds like me naming something. Well, let's use the most obvious thing that it possibly could be and just make it perfectly clear. And by that gate, near that gate, is a pool with this sort of covered colonnade around it. The colonnade sort of provided shade to any who would gather there. And you notice in verse 7 um, that, well, for one thing, uh, a multitude, verse 4, a multitude of invalids were gathered there. And in verse 7, you see why. They have this notion that when the water stirred in the pool, the first one in would be healed from whatever it is they have. Blind, lame, paralyzed. At least according to verse 4. They thought perhaps that that water stirring was an angel and, and maybe stuck his finger in and kind of stirred the water and they would race to get in. And the hope was that that would lead to some sort of healing. One of the men there is an invalid, paralyzed it, it seems, for 38 years, and Jesus approaches this man with a question. Do you want to be healed? Now, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to be brutally honest with you for a second. Because I read that question, and I think the most obvious answer possible is, you think? Right? I mean, like, who in that situation, who lying there around this pool for 38 years would have any answer other than, um, I mean, I guess. <laughs> but the reality is it's not quite so simple, is it? 38 years, someone has made sure he ate. 38 years, someone made sure he was taken care of. 38 years, someone got him to that pool. At least you get the impression, and we aren't told this exactly, right? But you have the impression that he's there as a pattern. 38 years, he's had someone. 38 years, he's managed to eke out a living, even as an invalid. And you take that away, what's he going to do? What's he qualified for? So the obvious sort of, well, you think, answer might not be quite so obvious. There's something else about this question, though, that Jesus asked him in verse 6. And it's, well, it's that Jesus asked him, the man didn't ask Jesus. Jesus didn't walk into the area, right? He didn't walk through the gate. He didn't show up in the in the area around this, this pool of Bethesda 
And people start clamoring, hey, that's Jesus. He can heal me. Jesus had to initiate the conversation with this man. This man didn't initiate it with Jesus. For that matter, Jesus only asked one person. But there's a multitude of people around this pool. Why not say, hey, I got an announcement. Everybody listen up. Anybody want to be healed? That's not what Jesus does. He goes to one man. One person offers healing for just that one. Now, here's the thing. Already, if we're honest, we think that violates Jesus' character. Right? The way we perceive Jesus now, the way we understand Jesus now is that reality is He's done everything He can do for your salvation. He's done everything He can do to deliver you from the effects of sin. And all He's doing is sitting in the coffee shop just waiting for anyone and everyone to come see Him. And yet... Here, he approaches just one man. He doesn't offer this healing to everyone, all of them equally. We think that is inconsistent with who Jesus is, which is exactly why John writes this. Remember, he wants you to behold. Behold who? Well, the true Jesus. Not the one we've conjured up in our minds. Not the ones that we've created. You can say what you will about everyone having equal opportunity before Christ, but this passage says otherwise. Notice too, even the question recognizes this man's dependence on someone else. Because he's the verb... Is passive. Do you want to be healed? Not, do you want to heal yourself? Not, hey, how come you aren't doing something about your paralysis? How come you aren't doing something about your problem? It's instead, do you want to be healed? And the implication is, because I can do that for you. Because I'm the one that offers you this healing. And even in his answer, his answer isn't yes. He, his answer isn't please. His answer isn't, oh, could you? Can you really do that? His answer is helpless and hopeless. I have nobody. And when I try to get into the pool, someone always beats me. He responds with helplessness and hopelessness. I have no one who can help me. This man admits he can't save himself. But what John goes on to record for us, what John goes on to tell us is that Jesus can. He can't save himself, but Jesus certainly can. And with one simple word, okay, it's a couple of words, but with one simple sentence, Jesus does exactly that. He offers healing for this man. Get up, 
pick up your mat, go on about your way. That simply, and Jesus heals him. Look, Jesus heals, and this is the picture over and over throughout the Gospels. Jesus heals by his word. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have to do it. He just commands. Actually, he, interestingly, he commands the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He doesn't command the paralysis to leave, which I find interesting, curious. But it's, it's the word of Christ that delivers this man from his bondage to the effects of the fall. It's the word of Christ that delivers this man from the, the physical effects of life in a sinful, broken world. The reality is that paralysis exists because sin is real. Right? Paralysis is a, is a thing because sin is real. It may not be the case that this man did something to cause his own paralysis. It may not be that it's, that it's directly related to a particular personal sin committed by this particular person. That, that may not be the case. Although verse 14 suggests that that may very well be a possibility. It may not be the result of something this man did. It may not be the result of a particular personal sin. And for that matter, we don't even know how old he is. 38 years he's been an invalid, but he may be 39. He may be 50. We have no idea. But Jesus proves in this passage that he has the power and authority to turn back the effects of sin. Whatever, whatever the fall brings at you, whatever the, 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 a fallen sinful world throws at you, Jesus exercises power and authority over those effects of the fall. Jesus has come to undo the damage caused by Adam's first sin. That's the picture here in this passage. And in fact, you can't even you can't help but notice the effect of Jesus's word in verse 8. Can you or verse 9? Notice the healing is immediate and complete. Right? And at once the man stood up. It's immediate. It's prompt. It's it's healing immediately. There's no like process. There's no, well, maybe eventually, maybe sooner or later this will go away. It's immediate healing and it's complete. Look, if you've ever, if you've ever had a cast, I, I, the first time I ever had a cast on the lower half of my leg, I had broken a couple of bones in my toes. I had one of those little rubber knob things on the bottom of the cast. So I didn't need crutches. I could run and climb trees and do all that stuff. And I think that cast was on for like three or four weeks. It wasn't that long. But when the cast came off, my right calf was noticeably, and, and let's face it, I've got pretty swole calf. No, my right calf was noticeably Smaller 
than my left. I mean, I'd been playing. I'd been climbing trees. I'd been doing all kinds of things. But that muscle wouldn't move. 38, not hours, not days, years. And at once, the man stood up, picked up his mat, and walked. All that weak bone, all that muscle atrophy, all that, I don't know, nerve damage. Who knows what's been going on in this man's body? Done. Solved. Gotten removed at just a simple command and in a moment. Jesus' word, the word of Jesus heals immediately and completely. But part of the picture here is that what Jesus does for this man, he does for us, right? What he does for this man, he does for you and me. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we are going to be freed from all our physical maladies in this life, but we absolutely will be in the one to come. We absolutely will be in the next life, but also what he does for this man physically is exactly what he does for you spiritually. You can't save yourself. For that matter, apart from His grace, you don't even care to. You're not even interested in it. You don't even want to. It's His grace to us that we desire that salvation, that we desire that redemption. And Jesus comes and He pronounces His word of forgiveness and immediately and completely, you and I are freed from the penalty of sin. It's a picture of Christ accomplishing our deliverance from the effects of the fall. Now, maybe suppose it's possible that, that some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, hold on a second, are you just simply allegorizing the passage that it's you're taking the physical and turning it into the spiritual, which may or may not be John's point, except that that's the connection Jesus makes in verse 14. Right? Because in verse 14, he says, Oh, you see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Perhaps his problem, his physical problem, whatever it was, his paralysis, we'll go with that, um, was the effect of some sin of his. Maybe it's just the effect of sin in general. The picture is his physical healing is connected to the spiritual world. Physical illness, paralysis, sickness, disease, even death itself are all products of sin. Maybe not a particular personal sin. Well, not a particular personal sin that you commit, but they are the effects of a particular personal sin that Adam committed in our place. Just go read Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. You and I, like this man, have to rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf. He accomplishes our salvation. He accomplishes our healing, our deliverance from the effects of life in a fallen world, and we can do nothing to save ourselves. We rest in the work of Jesus. But the second act, the second scene in this play, the, the second part of this passage shows us that Jesus works so that we can rest. 
You know, you would think that a healing, uh, that a, a miracle like that, the, the, the natural result should be streamers, a band, cake, dancing, singing, right? It should be a party. That, that should be the natural consequence of what Jesus has just done. Instead, this man is discovered by the Sabbath police. The Jewish leaders take out their little book and start to write him a ticket for violating the, the traditions of the fathers in, and breaking uh, the Sabbath command. And so the question becomes, is this, is this really a problem or is it a made-up problem? Is this really a sin or is it a made-up sin? You know how... I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing really how... Christians, how we in the church can be quick dis to dismiss actual sin with things like, oh, but he has a good heart. Oh, but she meant well. She's just misguided, right? We, we can dismiss sin, but if you break some tradition, you are doomed. If you break some man-made rule that we've decided to impose on people and added to the Bible to try to make the Bible better, then you're vilified and, and raked over the coals and there's, there's nothing else you can do. That's exactly what's going on here. The, the Sabbath police start to write this man a ticket. Uh, when he comes to the Jews, and again, in John's uh, lingo, the Jews is kind of his catch-all term for Jewish religious authorities who are in charge of making sure everybody's doing uh, according to the traditions of the fathers. Okay, that's, you see how much easier it is to write the Jews than to write that whole sentence, uh, that phrase, every single time. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. I'd love for you to show me that in the Bible. Okay, Exodus 20 gives us uh, a Sabbath, well, it restates, if we're honest, a Sabbath command for us, right? The fourth commandment, Exodus 20, rooted in God's work of creation, just as God created in six days and rested on the seventh, so too you and I should work six days and rest one. That's the pattern. The pattern is for us. And yes, Deuteronomy 5 restates the fourth commandment for us again. There, it connects it to redemption, not to creation. And yes, if you go read Jeremiah 17, you want your Sunday afternoon reading assignment, go read Jeremiah 17, which does say not to carry burdens on the Sabbath. But those burdens are related to work. Don't gather up your stuff and take it out to the, to the streets. Don't take it out to the marketplace. Don't take it out to the gates and, and unroll it, pull it out, and sell your wares. That's the connection in Jeremiah 17. But what the Jews have done, what these Jewish religious leaders have done, is they have decided, look, and, and we can give them all the benefit of the doubt, right? We can... We can we can give them all the as much credit as we can possibly give them. 
okay, if you, if there's a fence, if God builds a fence, if He draws a line and says, here's the line, here's the, the Sabbath, it is, it is within our tendency to want to draw another line, to build another fence, to make sure we don't cross the one that God put up. Well, if I can't do that, then maybe I should build a fence back here to keep me from coming close just to be safe. That's what the Pharisees had done. Well, if, if, you, can't, if you have to keep the Sabbath, if you're called to, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, well, how are we going to do that? Well, let's make rules. Let's create a list. 39 of them, exactly. 39 ways you might break the Sabbath. And so that's what this man is guilty of. He's picked up his bed. Well, they've decided, nope, that's a burden. You're not allowed to carry it. This man was just healed from paralysis. Is really the Old Testament, is really the Bible saying you can't take home the mat that you've been using for 38 years, that you now suddenly no longer need, you can't take it home and, and drop it in your trash can. And what they did was they focused on the fact that he was carrying a mat, not that he could carry anything at all. He's walking and carrying something which he couldn't do 10 minutes ago. They're making a big deal out of the wrong part and so they approach him and in verse 11 he gives an answer he gives there his response the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk jesus has exercised power and authority over the physical world and gives this man these instructions to take up his bed and walk. And of course, the religious leaders now decide new religious enemy number one is not the guy carrying a mat, but the guy who is working and telling other people to break the Sabbath. That guy, much more important, much bigger religious enemy than this guy. Okay, tell us who that guy is because we got to go get him. Because now he's our target. Now he's the one we have to go and get. And he, they points them to Jesus. He points them sort of that way. And the reality is, it seems like, verse 16, Jesus has been doing this before. We, we know this isn't the only time He heals on the Sabbath. We know that He performs miracles and does other things on the Sabbath that cause a stir among the Jews... Of course, it's always related to works of mercy and necessity. It's always eating or healing people. And in verse 16, he's doing these things on the Sabbath. That seems to be a bit of a problem. It's a picture of Jewish leaders trying to work for their salvation. Right? They have decided that even the day of rest is now a day of work because we have to do these things or not do these things just to make sure we're keeping the law properly. They're working to gain God's favor. They're working for their salvation. They're, they're trying to do everything they can, check all the boxes in order to make sure 
that God is satisfied with them. They're trusting in their own works. It's their ground of hope is their own work. But Jesus reminds us that he is working so that we can rest. Yes, we should keep the Sabbath holy by resting and worshiping and engaging in works of necessity and mercy, which we just affirmed together using Shorter Catechism 60 just a few minutes ago. And Jesus is constantly accused of breaking the Sabbath as he heals and eats, as he exercises works of necessity and mercy. How often are we tempted to take pride in our Sabbath keeping? How often are we tempted to take pride in our law keeping? How often are we actually like these Jewish leaders who, well, I don't do what those people do. They do this on Sunday and I don't do that on Sunday. See how much better I am than they are? See how much more honoring, God-honoring I am than they are? Yes, we're commanded to honor and keep the Sabbath. But apart from clearly given commands of Scripture, we have to be careful how we view other people and their Sabbath-keeping. We make up rules like the Jews do. We add, we, we improve on the Bible. Tongue in cheek, right? We improve on the Bible to kind of fix the lack of clarity. Perhaps you remember when really some of the greatest sins you could commit were to dance or go to a movie. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. We, we create these rules. We create these laws that we pile on top of Scripture and say this is our basis of obedience, our basis of acceptance before God. But Jesus is working on the Sabbath so that we can rest on the Sabbath. Jesus is working to accomplish our rest. I think some of that is what Jesus has in mind in verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. You see, the the father, having created, rested. But guess what he didn't do on that first Sabbath day in Genesis 2, 1 to 3? He didn't do nothing. Because as soon as he does nothing, his creation spins out of control. Right? Scripture tells us he upholds all things by the power of his right hand. His work of providence, his his involvement maintaining the order and, and preventing the chaos, it never has stopped. His rest on that first Sabbath was from the work of creation, but it wasn't from doing nothing. It is his mercy and it is his necessity and it is work of is his work of providence that holds all things together. The father has been working. And the reality is the father cares for the hurting. He cares for those burdened by, overpowered by the effects of sin. And he always has been. He's always cared for those. And Jesus says, that's my job. 
My job is to deliver you from the oppression of the effects of sin. Which means that his Sabbath obedience is counted to us by grace through faith as righteousness. The father cares for the needy, so too the son. The son is at work accomplishing our salvation and applying the benefits of that redemption to us, even on the Sabbath. His work is unto our rest. Jesus works so that we can rest in His work for our deliverance, so that we can rest on the Lord's day from our work and delight in His on our behalf. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in your own merits, if you're trusting in your own law-keeping, whether biblical laws or these sound like really good idea and additions to the Bible laws, then this passage warns you that you can't. Jesus has worked for your salvation. Rest in Him. Rest in His obedience. And remember that each Lord's Day, we are resting from our daily work in order to delight in His. We rest from our six-day labor work so that we can enjoy, so that we can delight in His work of creation, His work of redemption. We're resting in the work of Christ for our salvation to remind us that we can't earn it ourselves. But just as Jesus showed mercy to those in need, so we too rightly use the Lord's day when we exercise works of necessity and mercy. Just as Christ on the Sabbath, delivered the sick and the lame from the effects of sin, so too you and I are called to follow in His footsteps and reflect His care for the hurting even on the Lord's day. May God grant us rest in Christ to offer the healing of Christ to others who need it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are at work, uh, that you are working until now, that you haven't stopped, that you have never ceased upholding your creation, preserving it and ruling over it and governing it and accomplishing your purposes. Even on the Sabbath, would you give us a desire, a longing to use the Lord's day, to use the Christian Sabbath as a means of resting in the work of Christ worshiping and rejoicing together and in exercising works of necessity and mercy all to the honor and glory of Christ. May this day be our delight because of Christ's work for us. May we rest in the work of Christ on our behalf and may we celebrate that he has worked so that we might rest in him. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.